Kids, I hope you have a great time in the back. If you're staying in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis uh, chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. Um, as you'll see in a moment, the, uh, the subject of my thinking this week has been dreams, and our passage talks a little bit about dreams, and I even mentioned it a little bit in the, the Thursday email that we send out each week. I read an, an article this week about dreams and some data about dreams. I learned a lot from this article. I learned that the average person dreams about four to six dreams a night. And so if you multiply that over a, a lifetime, that's a lot of dreams. I also often read that the average dream can last anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes. And that means that you may dream up to two hours a night just as you sleep. So again, multiply that over a long lifetime, and that's a lot of time spent in dreams. Have you ever had the instance happen where you had a dream, you woke up, you instantly forgot about the dream, but it still sort of affected your mood for the rest of the day? You sort of woke up either a little cranky or a little frightened, and it sort of set you on a trajectory that day that wasn't exactly great. That's so surprising because the article said that 95% of our dreams are forgotten just after we wake up each day, even though they can sort of set the trajectory of our day. Well, this morning, we're going to return to the story of Jacob. We find him alone in the wilderness, and he has a powerful dream, and it's a dream that we'll see is going to change the course of his life. And Jacob doesn't want to forget this dream, and so what he does is he, he builds a marker so that he can remember this dream. The article uh, that I read this week said that if you want to remember your dreams, you should put a little dream journal by your bed so that as soon as you wake up, you can write down what it is that you dreamt and you can remember exactly what it was. Well, Jacob didn't have a pen, uh, he didn't have any paper, and so he made a marker because he did not want to forget this event. So I'm going to be reading from Genesis uh, 28, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 10 through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land and of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now skipping ahead to verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed... And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, 
I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. Father, we're so thankful for uh, the chance to be together this morning, Lord, for um, the breath that you give us in our lungs to sing your praises, Lord, to, to confess our sins, the, the beautiful scriptures that we've read throughout about um, the great and wonderful grace that we have in Jesus Christ. What a way to celebrate. We pray that as we come to your word now, Father, that you would speak to us through it. We know that it is powerful, that it shapes us into who you want us to be, and so we pray that as we approach your word this morning, that we would hear your voice and that we would leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this uh, new year, we've been looking at the life of Jacob and what it tells us about the struggles that we experience in life, what it tells us about the struggles of faith, and ultimately, really what it means to struggle with God and what we know about God and the nature of faith. If you were with us last week, we started this series and we saw that um, Jacob is not your, your typical biblical saint. In fact, I think very few people would call Jacob a saint at all. Uh, instead, we discover from the very beginning he's a, he's a hustler, he is a uh, conniver, he makes plans, he swindles people out of things. Uh, his, his name means uh, he who takes someone by the heel. Um, other people have translated it as, as he who cheats. That's quite a name, right, for this biblical saint that we have in the Old Testament. If you are with us last week, we saw he stole. He stole his brother's uh, birthright, stole his brother's inheritance, he stole his brother's uh, spiritual blessing. And this was very countercultural to the, to the model of the ancient world where all of those things uh, went, to, went to the elder brother. And so they should have gone to Esau, but instead Jacob steals all of these things away from his brother. Uh, you can imagine Esau's response. He is pretty angry. In fact, he is furious, so he plots to kill his brother. Jacob needs to flee from his family And so he becomes uh, an estranged fugitive from his own family. He becomes the Uncle Bruno that no one wants to talk about. What's so remarkable about his story is that even though he is a scoundrel, even though he is a swindler, God still chooses to bless him in remarkable ways. 
And it reminds us that his uh, story is really a story of grace from the very beginning to the end, from the very start to the very finish, which makes his story just like ours, a story of God's grace from start to finish. In the first half of our passage in Genesis 28, we learn of uh, Jacob's final conversation with his father before he has to flee. So he has this final conversation so he, right before he flees the anger from his brother. And they have this conversation in which Jacob blesses him. But he gives him an instruction. You're not to marry uh, uh, someone from the Canaanite or foreign tribes that are around you. You see, Isaac was concerned for his son and particularly for his son's faith. He didn't want Jacob to marry a Canaanite because he was fearful that the Canaanite gods would draw his heart away from the worship of the one true God. It was probably good for Isaac to feel that way. You don't get a sense at all that Jacob had any sort of relationship or had encountered the God of his father or the God of his grandfather, Isaac or Abraham, at all. And so, This is a father deeply concerned for the faith of his own son and not wanting his faith to be drawn away to the pagan gods that were around him. So you just imagine a father's heart in Isaac as he wants, as he sees his child getting ready to walk away and wants his child to walk away with his own faith that he inherited from his father and his grandfather. See, Isaac couldn't believe for Jacob, just like you and I can't believe for our own kids. But as Jacob leaves, all Isaac could do would be to hope and pray that Jacob would meet God on the journey, that he would somehow meet God on the way. And so he sends Jacob away with the promises that uh, Abraham received, that Abrahamic covenant. He sends him to his brother-in-law Laban, who is Rebekah's brother, in hopes that he could find a wife and ultimately that he could find the one true God. Little did Isaac know when he was about to send him away, giving him these instructions, little did Isaac know that Jacob was about to meet God in a very special way in the form of a dream. The passage tells us as he was sleeping in the wilderness all alone, Jacob has a dream He sees angels ascending and descending a ladder that had reached up into the heavens. Just imagine what this would have looked like. The Lord's at the very top of this ladder. Literally, you could translate it as as a flight of stairs where God is at the very top. And from the top of this ladder or this staircase, God has something he wants to say to Jacob. I'm the God of your father. And your grandfather, the the God that they have been telling you about for generations. And God says, the promises that I made to them, your grandfather and your father, I am now making those promises to you as well. In fact, I'm going to carry those promises through you in order to bless your family and your offspring as well. Verse 15 might be the most remarkable of this, uh, these verses where, it's, where God says to Jacob, Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God, in effect, is saying, Jacob, you're in the wilderness now. You're here because of your own doing. You're in a difficult circumstances because of your own doing. You've fallen on difficult times. But I am going to be with you 
every single step of the way. This isn't God just blessing uh, uh, Jacob through his father Isaac. This is now God blessing Jacob himself, blessing him directly. This isn't now just Isaac's faith. It isn't now just Abraham's faith. This is now Jacob's faith as well. So what I want to do is quickly look at the promise, then its impact on Jacob, and finally the, the image itself. And so let's start by looking at the promise, which is beautiful. I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go. How many of you have watched those old war movies before where, where soldiers go off to war and they leave their, their family and their children behind and then they're getting ready to go into uh, a battle or a tense time or a life-threatening time. And so what do they do? They, they pull out the pictures of their family and they use those pictures as a, as a source of comfort and inspiration for them as they're about to go into a very dangerous time. And while they do offer comfort and inspiration, at the end of the day, they're just a picture. They're not the real thing. Well, here, Jacob is not just given a picture of God, but he's given the promise of the presence of God. This is the very real thing. Uh, This weekend, what we do uh, in our country is we celebrate um, the life of Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, a lot of us have off tomorrow uh, because of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, what not everybody knows is before Martin Luther King Jr. was a civil rights activist, he was uh, a Baptist minister. And actually came from a long line of of Baptist ministers. His father was a Baptist minister. His grandfather was a Baptist minister. And really the civil rights movement started out of a pastor who was concerned for his congregation and the difficult things that they were going through. You'll see over this weekend and uh, the next couple days all sorts of stories about resolve and heroism of Martin Luther King Jr. But it wasn't always like that. Uh, Charles Marsh in his book, Beloved Community, says there, he tells a story about a time where Martin Luther King's faith was faltering. Um, it tells a story of one night he had received a phone call, and he, that phone call threatened his life, threatened the life of his family. It was full of all sorts of expletives, and Martin Luther King hung up the phone just like he always did. Um, because he got about 30 to 40 of these phone calls every single day. You can only imagine how much that would weigh on someone to receive that day in and day out. But he writes, on this particular night, that phone call really stuck with him. It really got him, and he couldn't sleep that night. And uh, Charles Marsh writes this in his book. He writes, unwelcome thoughts prey on the mind in the late hours, and King was overcome with fear. I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. I heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. Stirred into the wakefulness, King made a pot of coffee and sat down at the kitchen table. I felt myself faltering, he said. It was as though the violent undercurrents of the protest rushed in upon him with heightened force and he surveyed the turbulent waters for a way of escape, searching for an exit point between courage and convenience. A way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward, and he found none. I was ready to give up, he said. He felt himself reeling within, as the psalmist had said, his soul melted because of trouble at wit's end. I felt myself growing in fear, said King. 
Sitting at his kitchen table, sipping the coffee, King's thoughts were interrupted by a sudden notion that at once intensified his desperation and clarified his options. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now, you can't call on mama. You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, the power that can make a way out of no way. With his head now buried in his hands, King bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. He said these words. He said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I still think I'm right. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. Now I am afraid. And I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak as well. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I cannot face it alone. As he prayed alone in the silent kitchen, Luther heard a voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for the truth, and lo, I will be with you even till the end of the world. Then King heard the voice of Jesus. I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone, no, never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And as the voice washed over the stains of the wretched caller, King reached a spiritual shore beyond fear and apprehension. I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before, he said. Almost at once, my fears began to go. King said of his midnight flash of illumination and resolve, my uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. One wonders how different our world would have been without this moment. A moment in which Martin Luther King Jr. believed powerfully with everything in his heart that God was with him every step of the way. Friends, that's the the promise that Jacob received here in our story. He had all sorts of uncertainty before him. He was in the wilderness. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he had the promise that God was going to be with him every step of the way. Here's what's amazing, friends. If you are Christ's, then you have that same promise. You have that same promise. No matter what uncertainty you face, God is with you every step of the way. And so that's the promise. What about the impact? Well, despite the, imp- despite the promise, the impact on Jacob is a little hard to trace in his responses. Obviously, his response initially is all. He's, he's dumbfounded by what uh, has just happened in his dream. He sets up this little pillar because he wants to remember that this is where the gate of heaven is. Maybe he thought it was now a literal gate of heaven and he wanted to return to it. And at the very end, he promises to God that he would give him a tenth of everything he has to the house of God that he's going to build on this spot um, as long as God provides for him and gives him bread and gives him clothing. For, for centuries, people have wondered about sort of what is, what is this response? It seems a little bizarre. What's the heart behind it? It sort of seems like he's negotiating with God a little bit. God, if you take care of me and if you give me bread and clothing, uh, I'll give you a tenth of what I have. And so it's, he, his, his, his response is curious. It's a little bizarre. It's hard to tell 
what exactly is going on, but I think it is safe to say that either way, these are Jacob's initial steps in the faith. Maybe they're, we could call them his baby, wobbly baby steps in the faith. He probably brings a lot of misconceptions about God to the table, but what's important to know is that this faith was now no longer just the faith of his father or of his grandfather. It was now his faith as well. That was the impact of this dream. But finally, I want to take a moment to just consider the image itself, this image of a ladder or a staircase with angels ascending and descending on it and God up there at the very top. If you read 17 chapters earlier in the book of Genesis, if you turn back 17 chapters, uh, you'll get to Genesis chapter 11 and you'll see a, a story called the Tower of Babel. And in that, in that story, mankind decides that they are going to bring together their ingenuity and strength and they're going to build a tower that reaches all the way up to the heavens. And at the end, God is displeased with what he sees. He, he steps in, he confuses their effort, and he scatters the people. Now, at face value, it's hard to understand why God would do this. Is he against engineering and architecture and ingenuity? And I don't think that's exactly what's going on at all. If you read between the lines, you discover the reason for God's judgment. And the reason for God's judgment is mankind's hubris in the midst of it all. See, mankind believed that they could reach the heavens through their ingenuity and through their hard work and their collective work ethic. And believing that thing, believing that in their pride, led them to all sorts of confusion and all sorts of heartache. What it reminds us is that this is sort of the nature of man-made religions or any religious attempts that are not according to God's word. Because all these man-made religions, the nature of them, uh, teach that we need to earn our way back into God's good graces. We need to make sure somehow that our goodness and our good deeds outweigh our indiscretions and our bad deeds. We need to sort of build our own spiritual resume in order for you and I to gain access to paradise. But this is mistaken at the end of the day because it denies the depth of our sin, it waters down the holiness of God, and we deceive our hearts in the midst of it as to the true nature of our hopelessness as human beings. But this image is different that we see in the dream. This is a staircase not made by human hands. This is a staircase that is made by God, a ladder made by his hands. It also leads up into the heavens. Only on this ladder, we don't climb up to the top. Instead, God descends on this ladder. God seeks Jacob out just as he seeks you and I out. Thousands of years later in the Gospels, you read about a, a very religious man whose name is Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is, is one day sitting under a tree. He later becomes one of Jesus' uh, apostles. But before he became an apostle, he was sitting underneath a tree meditating on God's word. And in that moment, he encounters Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ immediately recognizes that Nathaniel is a very religious man. And if he's a religious man, then he knows this story about Jacob's ladder. So Jesus looks at Nathaniel and he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that he is Jacob's ladder. He is the only means by which you and I and Nathaniel can get to heaven and be justified before God. It isn't our ascent to God by our own efforts. Instead, it is his descent. He came down. He gave his life for us so that you and I could ascend, could spend forever with him in paradise. It isn't because we sought him out. It isn't because of our goodness or our righteousness. It is because he sought us out. He found us in the wilderness of sin and death. He came down so that you and I could have eternal life. And so, friends, what does that mean for us? It means this. Stop striving for something that you can never truly reach. Instead, allow the grace of Jesus Christ to find you. John Calvin wrote this beautiful thing about Jesus Christ, our Jacob's ladder, our Savior. He said, Jesus Christ is the medium through which the fullness of all celestial blessings flows down to us and through which we, in turn, ascend to God. What's he saying? It's all about Jesus from start to finish. And so let his grace enfold you. Let his promises be the foundation of your soul. He will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your screw-ups and failings and missteps are, he will never leave you nor forsake you. That is his promise to you. And that's a promise that you can bank on with your very own soul. Let's pray.